You are listening to Real Men Feel with Andy Grant. Real Men Feel encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been taught, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having, but all men can benefit from. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. This is your host, Andy Grant. Uh, You know, life can be challenging sometimes, and especially in the midst of a global pandemic, life can be extra challenging for for your health, for your concern about your health of loved ones, concern about your job, about money, about the economy, about when will things get back to normal? Is, Is normal a thing anymore? What will the new normal be? Um, so there's a lot to deal with. There's a lot to cope with. So I wanted to get an expert in all that joining me today. And I've got Johnny Crowder. He's a suicide and abuse survivor, a touring musician, writer, and the founder and CEO of Cope Notes, which is this really cool daily mental health support via text. So welcome to the show, Johnny. Thank you. Wow. Such pressure. I am the expert on things getting back to the new normal. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. You're in charge. New cabinet post for you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, from now on, every Friday we get to have pizza, Yay! no matter what. <laughs> cool, man. So h- how is the pandemic treating you? Are, are, are things tougher for you living-wise through this? Has it been easier? Like, what, what's been your experience so far? Um, it's been, well, there's two answers, as a human and as a business owner. So um, as a human, it's been pretty challenging because I can't, lean on my normal coping mechanisms like going to the gym or playing basketball or going to concerts. Um, So that's been really challenging to find new ways to uh, cope. And I definitely miss being around humans. Humans are pretty great. Um, And then as a business owner, well, I tour in a band and obviously all tours are canceled for the entire year. So that is a challenge in itself. And then running a business, financially you're like how do i pay people that's literally what you think if you own a business during the pandemic the only thought that you have is how do i pay the people who rely on me to pay them that is like the the first thing i think of when i wake up last thing when i go to bed is like how do i continue supporting the people who make my business possible cool uh, and you do a, you do a lot of really interesting things and I guess we should back it up and, and allow you to start at the beginning because I'm sure that someone that goes on to create something called Cope Notes has just lived a very carefree, casual life, you know, all <laughs> oh, sunshine man. and rainbows. <laughs> that sounds awesome. I love rainbows. They're underrated. They like became such a cheesy trope that we just stopped thinking they're cool. And it's like, what the heck? <laughs> they are literally a miracle. <laughs> yeah, my my life was not the easiest. It has not gotten super easy yet. Um, But yeah, long story short, uh, and I'm going to cliff notes this just so we can speed through it because this is context for for listeners, Um, but it's not the content. So I always try to draw that clarifying line. I don't want to talk forever about what I've been through. I'd rather talk about um, how I got through it instead. So um, abusive household, drugs and alcohol in the home, uh, multiple attempts on my own life. Spoiler alert, I survived them all because I'm still here. Um, sexually abused as an adult, which is sort of a plot twist for me. And really just lots of different uh, mental and emotional health issues. So schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, OCD, 10 years of treatment, tons of medication, brain damage. I mean, you if you're listening right now, you can see how I wouldn't want to spend a whole podcast talking about all that stuff. But suffice it to say that Um, I think someone could venture to claim that I am an expert in finding coping mechanisms because I've had to do it my entire life. I do want to talk a little bit about the, your attempts, um, because I think one of my big things is to get more people to talk about that, get away, get away from the stigma. Uh, more people, most people think about it. More people have made attempts than, than anyone realizes, I believe. So when, when, when you, and this is true for some or all of them, but were your attempts, did you really believe you wanted to die or was kind of making an attempt a way to cope with what was going on? So I've thought critically about why I wanted to die because I really did. It was a very pronounced want. It wasn't like, oh, maybe I'll consider suicide. It was like, no, suicide is my answer to what I'm going through. 
And um, if you're watching the video, you'll see, I can't remember what arm it's on, but I have a, a tattoo there and it's the eye in prison, my band name. It's the eye in our logo. And there's a rest symbol and a semicolon there. It's the rest symbol and semicolon combined. And the semicolon, a lot of you are aware, is a suicide awareness and prevention symbol. And the rest symbol is because genuinely, when I really think about why I wanted to die, it was that I wanted to rest. I wanted a break. I wanted to not feel so much stimulus. I think this is why a lot of people turn to drugs and alcohol and, and less healthy coping mechanisms also. We just want rest. We want a break. We want to be insulated from stimulus for long enough to clear our minds. And back then, I didn't realize that I could rest and unplug without completely leaving the planet. I thought, well, if I'm ever going to get a wink of rest, because I also was dealing with insomnia back then, my medication was messing with my sleeping, and I felt so unrested. So something that we try to clarify in, in the band and with our music, we try to tell people that like, you know, if you want to die right now, it might just be that you're tired. And for me, that's what it was. It was, it was pure fatigue. Yeah. In my own experience, like I, and I, I say this carefully now, I, I certainly believed I wanted to die. I no longer say that I want to die. I just that I, I believed I wanted to die. Mm-hmm. But after, like I, I had a number of, you know, quote unquote failed attempts myself. And only after so many did I realize that it was one of my coping mechanisms. Like, cause it was weird. Like things always got better after I made an attempt, wherever I landed was better than before the attempt. And then finally I realized maybe I can just get help and I can skip the attempting to die part. And, it, and that worked too. But so that's, that's why I ask and, and wonder how, how conscious of a coping mechanism was it or drugs and alcohol or is it all just, I don't freaking want to feel right now. I, before I even touch that, I want to focus on, I've never thought about this before. And keep in mind, I talk at events all the time. I talk with folks at shows all the time. And I've never considered this the fact that we call someone surviving a suicide attempt a failed attempt is so backward. That is a success. That is a success. That's like so trippy. I need to chew on that and try to write something because I don't, that's my way of trying to understand something is blank word document, write it out, edit it until I understand what I'm trying to say. But I love that. I love uh, that. And, and we're not supposed to use that term, but it's, it's in my book and my story because no, when, when I, wanted to die and did not make it, I considered myself a failure. So I intentionally used that term, even though it's not, you know, it, it's not supposed to be helpful, whatever, but it, that's how I felt in those moments. But yeah, yeah. it is, it, it totally is a success story. And, uh, you know, it, just stick with this theme, the, everything I used to blame and, and curse myself and whatever kept me alive and the voice and the, everything I thought was weakness was my strength. So you know, oh. you're, you're right on, you're right on there. Dude, the, so the Cope Notes podcast, um, the podcast that I host today, we put out an episode with a YouTuber that I've followed for a long time. And he specifically says our weaknesses are our strengths. And the example he gave, which I can totally relate to is if you're a musician that is of some level of accomplishment, the like if you've been signed or if you've toured or if you've like really been doing it for a while the odds are that you have a case of self-criticism so part of criticizing yourself is allowing you to get better and hone your craft because you don't settle for a base level of talent or achievement you push yourself but then on the other side of that is you being so self-critical that you suffer from low self-esteem or lack of confidence and that can actually inhibit your relationship with your craft. So your it's the same personality trait. It's the same attribute has two, it, it has a positive and a negative, and it's really about us balancing it. So it was fascinating to not only just edit that episode about our strengths being our weaknesses, but then now you're reminding me how true it is and hearing something from multiple angles just drills it in my head. Yeah, and I think that's true for for everybody. That's why there isn't. I haven't done just one episode on suicide awareness, mm-hmm. and you know it, it's. I, I saw I saw Louise Hay, the the president of Hay House, speak a while ago, and she would say, you know, you're going to hear ten people all say the same thing, but they'll say it a little bit different, and one of them is really going to connect with you, and that's what we want. So, mm-hmm. I mean, because especially especially someone that's got a history of of addiction 
of depression, of anxiety, of any mental health challenges, we're dumb. Like, we don't get it the first time. You know, we're slow learners. Like, I, I, it took me multiple failed attempts to realize maybe I don't have to attempt to kill myself. Maybe there's something yeah. better, right? So that's what I mean. And, I, and with all honesty and humility, yeah, we, we're human. And sometimes we're dumb. And we just stick to the thing we are used to sticking with, even if it doesn't serve us at all. Yeah, I, I think about self-harm as maybe the most backwards thing I ever turned to because the idea that pain could help relieve pain makes so little sense in hindsight. At the moment, I think I was just trying to feel a sense of control over pain. But looking back, I'm like, what the heck? It's like, imagine, you, you know, in a movie when someone, um, you know, gets they get their arm crushed by a boulder in a movie or whatever, and they have to like tie a tourniquet around the arm. They tie a tourniquet around the arm. They don't like kick the person in the head and be like, well now see now focus on the pain in your head. Like that doesn't help anybody. And I think that's what I was doing was just trying to feel a different type of pain. And looking back, I'm like, how on earth did I think more pain was going to help alleviate the pain that I was feeling? And something I say on stage all the time on tour is this world will hurt you enough. There are people out there who will hurt you whether they mean to or not, maybe it's just out of sheer negligence. There are circumstances that will hurt you. There are acts of nature like, like hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes. There is enough hazard out there to last you a hundred lifetimes. So don't waste any of your time hurting yourself because there's enough things trying to hurt you. If anything, you should be actively looking for ways to protect yourself. So you, you mentioned that it was a kind of a 10-year journey of, of growth and healing for yourself? I think it, it was 10 years in the sense that I was in treatment for 10 years, but I, I, um, I was exhibiting self-harm symptoms as a toddler, and I was hallucinating all through elementary, middle school, experiencing very, very violent outbursts of behavior and temper. So I, I from where I'm sitting, it's lifelong. Um, but the amount of time that I actually, I didn't start working on it until I was, I think I was in mandatory counseling at 15 and I don't think I was honestly trying to work on it at that point. I think it took me a little more time, but I would say, um, from age 15 on is when I was a little more aware of what was going on. So you said mandatory and you really weren't working. So I know for me, it was this case, uh, did you feel that you could be helped? Um, I simultaneously, wow, my brain, dude, like looking back, hindsight is incredible. So I simultaneously thought that nobody could help me and also that I didn't need help, which is hilarious to think that either thought could coexist with the other one. I thought not only did nobody understand me and I was beyond repair, but also that nothing was wrong with me and this is just the way I was wired and... I didn't need fixing because I could find workarounds in my own life. All right. So if you, if you could find a workaround, doesn't that imply that something, what, what are you trying to get around? <laughs> Dude, I need to go back into, I need to build a time machine and go back and just look, I need to grab my 15 year old cheeks and shake my head mm. and just, you, you know, something that's always just floored me is logic. Like, because all of this stuff that we're talking about was driven by emotion. In my, from where I'm sitting, suicide was never a logical decision. It is so, it, it, it has always been so easy for me to debunk suicidal ideation and self-harm with logic. With emotion, it's hard because I can get really rooted in whatever pain that I feel and justify however I want. But the moment you bring logic into it, like you just said, well, if there's a workaround, then it follows that there's something that you have to work around. That absolutely knocks me out. KO first round. <laughs> you know, when, when I was 17 and into mental hospital after multiple attempts to end my life, I was almost the reversed. I thought it was purely logical. And I thought I could convince anyone that they should be suicidal. Like, wow. I thought, you know, the world is just factually a mess. We're all misfits. Nobody like, you know, and I would just go the litany of, you know, political items and world chaos and all this stuff. And like, how can anyone not be suicidal? You're just denying everything. And mm. I, would just, I, I was so freaking glad to be wrong. But that was my worldview. I just thought, life sucks, then you die. Why am I waiting? Yeah. Wow. 
that's it just goes to show how there is no universal answer and if if there really were don't you think we would have already rolled it out <laughs> yeah now. it would just be one book there would just be one oh good you got the book to save my life great i'm all set yep. now thank and, you and that goes to support exactly what you said earlier there's going to be 10 speakers they'll all say the same thing but in and hopefully one of them is going to resonate with you and i think that's as someone who works in the mental health care field i can't view cope notes as the answer to everything i think cope notes is i mean think about it like vitamins can your body just ingest vitamin a and survive mm-hmm. no you need a litany of vitamins so whenever i look at the the care system as a whole i think well we're going to bring something that the crisis center doesn't and the crisis center is going to bring something that real-time counselors and therapists don't. And then those therapists are going to bring something that self-help books don't. And those self-help books are going to bring something that supplements don't. And truly, at the end of the day, I, I genuinely wish, this is like me debunking what I do, or, or like it's, it's undervaluing Cope Notes and my entire mission, but I genuinely wish that there was just one thing. I wish every day that... I'd wake up and turn on the news and they're like, we found it. And everybody else who works in mental health can quit and find some other thing to do because we found it. I would actually, of course I'd be crushed because my career would have exploded, but that's, I think what every care provider wants. We wish that there was one simple thing, pat answer, but there's not just even between your view and my view of the exact same situation. We're on polar opposite ends. Well, that, I mean, that's just the, hmm, our symptoms, the way we process, like, like, I think it does come down to one thing. Um, it's not simple. It, you know, I mean, to me, it, all, it comes down to, you know, loving yourself. If, if you think something's wrong with you, subconsciously or consciously, physically, mentally, emotionally, you're, you know, it's going to change how you operate and see, see the world. Um, but yeah, so I think it is, you know, it does come down to one thing. Um, but it's a difficult thing to get to, <laughs> to deal with, to do anything about. Um, <laughs> when, you, when you're a teenager and you're in the mandatory counseling and you're not sure you're really helping anyone help you, what shifted? What, what was the thing that made you say, all right, I'm actually going to make use of this? Um, you know, I think that I kind of had a couple different things that woke me up a little bit. But my whole TED talk is about how I didn't have a moment like that and how I was always waiting for it. Like I was always waiting for like, wow, this is a breakthrough. I, I you know, cause everyone talks about like, oh, I was in therapy and I had a breakthrough. Like you see it on, on movies and stuff and you're, and I'm like, well, I've been going to therapy every week for 18 months and I haven't, where's my breakthrough? I come here all the time. And I think what, instead of a specific moment, it was more of a sensation. And the sensation was that my behavior wasn't just destructive to me. It was also destructive. It was causing distress in the lives of people that I really cared about. So I think what really made me want to apply myself to treatment was realizing that um, my girlfriend at the time was afraid of me dying and she she would cry when we would say goodbye sometimes i'm like what is this like get over it we've been together for a year i'm gonna see you next week like relax and one time she was like it's just scary saying goodbye because i don't know if it's the last time i'm gonna see you and seeing her cry she did nothing wrong and i'm like i'm no not even i'm my behavior is hurting her so i like turned and looked at my behavior and i'm like you're going down and i think there were lots of moments like that where you realize that your mental illness isn't just yours. And I obviously dealing with self-harm, I had no problem hurting myself, but if anyone laid a finger on the people that I cared about, I would get defensive. So I was actually getting defensive against my mental health condition. Yeah. Yeah. I find it, it's certainly true for me. And I, for a lot of people I talk to that, that anyone that is dealing with suicidal ideation will often lie to ourselves. I mean, a lot of it is lying to ourselves, but one of the big lies is that other people will be better off if I'm gone mm-hmm. to kind of de- to take away that notion that it, 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 we want, at least I wanted to build up 
more evidence that me being alive is inflicting pain, but if I'm gone, everyone else can breathe easier. They won't have to worry about me anymore. My, my girlfriend's yeah. not crying. Maybe she'll be upset the day I die, but she'll get over that, and she won't ever cry again, and yeah. you know, she'll be better off. And um, were, were you aware of that sort of like lying to yourself to kind of stay in your, your thinking? Yeah, I think I, I was always under the impression that things would be easier for the people I loved if I left. Like I was doing them a favor. And I, in a very bizarrely, in a very bizarrely conceited way, I thought that I was like so kind for for exiting people's lives. I thought, wow, I'm I'm going to do everyone. This is going to be the nicest, the greatest thing I ever did for the people I love is leave. And the idea that you cuz it's 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 selfishness masquerading as selflessness mm. i think at the time i was like i'm so kind for lifting this burden off the people i love and now i look back and i'm like what the heck i was like so convinced that everything was about me that i failed to understand the humanity of the people i loved they weren't like characters in a movie they were like real humans yeah I, for a long time and so my suicidal ideation i can remember it as early as third grade which tells me that it was even before that too but mm-hmm. i would often think like well it's just like i'm moving away like i've had friends move it's just like if i don't i just moved you won't see me again bye mm-hmm. like why well, don't i really like i'm like what's the big deal um but it's a big deal and you know we 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 all influence each other more than we realize and and it can be for the better. <laughs> that doesn't have to be miserable and you know misery loves company, but so does love, joy, and and happiness too. Um, at what age did did your music career start? Not the career, but when were you into music? Was that was that helpful at all at all times? Or yeah, when I was so when I was seven. Well, when I was a kid, I would listen to like a little cassette player, and. Um, then eventually we got a Walkman and the freaking whole world changed. <laughs> um, and I had a little SpongeBob CD case I'm remembering now. Um, but I, it, music was always a source of comfort for me. And I got my first uh, FM stereo when I was seven, like a boom box. Yeah. Um, and then I got one of those Walmart first act uh, guitars when I was eight. I really started playing then. Um, and I would, anytime I would get frustrated or lose my temper or, which was like constantly, by the way, um, anytime I felt like I was going to explode or I was so hot that I was going to hit something or, or break something, I would sit down with my guitar and play guitar for five minutes or I'd put on a song on the radio and it was like magic how it would de-escalate the situation. So, um, I, yeah, I started playing guitar when I was eight, listening to music constantly, day and night, like no breaks for years. I learned every song I ever heard of on guitar. And then I actually, um, I wanted to be a guitarist. And then when I was 16, f- just had freshly turned 16, I joined a band as the vocalist because I wanted to be a guitarist and they didn't need one. So I became the vocalist. And what was it? What type of music was it? It was metal for people who don't know metal. That's the easiest way to say it. And then for people who do know metal, it was like a Southern style metal core. So it was like um, kind of August Burns Red, a plea for purging, like not super heavy, um, but very catchy metal. And aggressive. I would I would say <laughs> I haven't made any non-aggressive music okay, professionally. Yeah, I write a lot of really pretty music on my own, and I have um, I write fingerstyle acoustic guitar all the time. I write classical guitar. I love that stuff. I write a lot of folk. But in terms of my music career, from the moment I stepped on the stage, it has been um, aggressive music. Cool. And actually, I was just I just checked you out. Uh, I checked out your band Prison just moments before we started talking. Mm-hmm. And so I, I played Mental Illness and Stay Alive. Uh, I, I really like both of them. And, Heck yeah. Uh, and Mental Illness, reminded, the, the breakdown towards the end of it, it reminded me of, of a song I grew up with, um, Institutionalized by Suicidal Tendencies, which wow. was kind of the first song that like spoke to me. It's like, oh my God, they get it. This is, this is it. Yeah. 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 We, 
we just try to, you know, in my old band, so I used to be in a band called Dark Sermon and I was in that band for eight years and we were signed and touring and, and really with that many eyes on me, I was focused on veiling what I was feeling. So I would, I would write a song about schizophrenia, but I would dress it up in these huge complicated metaphors so that I could insulate myself so that people didn't know what I was going through. And then in prison, I was just like, F it. Like, I'm just going full force. And I'm going to talk about everything in plain terms. I'm going to be honest. And it's, it's incredible to see how prison has impacted way more people than Dark Sermon ever did. And in just a couple of years, and I think it's because of the honesty. I don't, you know, prison is unsigned. Um, and we don't have a manager and we've done way bigger tours playing in front of way more people. We've gotten way more streams, all that stuff than dark sermon, even though dark sermon had all of these things helping us like managers and um, labels. And I think that just goes to show that honesty impacts people more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I find time and time again, that authenticity is magnetic like that that's the charisma of a front man or of any entertainer any creative expression authenticity honesty it lets people yeah it lets people connect and you you being on stage being on stage doing anything and being open gives everyone watching you permission to be open in their lives too um, dude permission that's the key yeah so in dark sermon were you kind of did did other band members did like support staff of the band did they know these were your true feelings or did they think oh you just like writing about these weird subjects um uh, you know i like to think that i was pretty good at hiding it but i remember talking to some friends um just in the last couple of years and i was kind of like did you know what I was going through back then. Cause I do a ton of advocacy now. So if you Google me, you, you can find out everything. And so I talked to one of my friends from back then. And I was like, were you even aware? And they were like, Oh yeah, we all knew that you were going through it. We just never asked about it or tried to help. Cause it was so weird to talk about. And I was like, wow, that is incredible. And, and it's, it actually scares me because how many people listening to this podcast right now has a friend or family member who they know is going through something really awful and just is, is paralyzed by inactivity. We're like, Oh, we're not going to bring it up. We shouldn't say anything. And it's like, dude, you could save their life by asking them to come over and watch family feud and eat pizza. Like you could literally save them. So looking back, I, I think that my band must have known because how could you not? Um, But at the time I liked to think that I was so good at hiding it. Like I was this master actor that could veil everything, but I don't think anyone is as good at acting as they think they are. Why did you, what drove the hiding of it? What, what were you, what were you afraid of? Um, well, there's a sense of, I associated what I was experiencing with weakness. So I figured if I was really mentally strong, if I was really a man, then I wouldn't be struggling with, I, I wouldn't be crying. I wouldn't be depressed. I wouldn't be sad. I'm sad. I'm wimpy. I don't want to display that to the world. So what do I do? You got to get a bunch of tattoos. You got to wear clothing with pentagrams on it. You got to wear these big Doc Martin boots and have a big metal vest and work out a ton. And that was my way of showing other people how tough I was because what I wanted people to say and this is this is not exciting to admit but what I wanted people to say was oh he's so tough that he's probably not dealing with anything I genuinely wanted to avert all any sort of care or coddling or oh are you okay I didn't want any of that because it made me feel weak but looking back, the biggest acts of strength I've ever made were seeking treatment and getting better because it takes way more strength to fight the current and turn around than it does to just go with the flow. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've said this often that sometimes the bravest thing you can do is ask for help. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it will seem like the world is going to end. 
but ideally all someone at the other end just goes, okay. And you're like, really? <laughs> like, <laughs> yep. You're not mad. I'm not in trouble. You know, I'm not being outed. You're not taking you know, my man card away, whatever the hell, you know, the crazy thoughts are. Um, and, and going back to asking, it, it doesn't take a lot. Just, you know, how are you really? Right. That's the permission to, to openly and honestly answer. And you don't have to have answers when, when I find when someone is going through shit, just someone willing to listen. Like you don't, you don't have to like, tell me what to do. I'm not looking for your, for advice, input, guidance, just like that another human being can stay in front of me and I can tell you how fucking God awful shitty I feel and that I think I want to die. And you just go, okay. You know, I'm not leaving I'm right here. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, cause, cause I, that, that was my biggest fear that people found out how bad I felt uh, they, everyone would just run away. They would just flee. Like this guy's fucking mess. I'm out of here. Yeah. I, my go-to phrase that I use when people share stuff like that with me is the thing that helped me a lot when I was going through it and people would say it, I would share this big awful thing about what I was going through, what I was feeling. And a friend of mine would say, that's brutal. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah. It's so brutal. And just the, literally two words, that's brutal. That's, I literally in that moment felt that de-escalation that like all of the wind that I was fighting against just ceased. And I was like, oh, yeah. You're not running. You're not going, oh, you poor baby. Is there anything I can do to help? Like, get your hands off me. Like, what, what I really wanted was for someone else to understand that it was difficult. And I think the words, that's brutal. I'm like, yeah, thank you for understanding how hard this is for me, you know? Again, what, what made your shift um, from, from Dark Sermon keeping it closed, from, from lying, thinking you're, thinking you're the world's greatest actor, to then deciding, you know what, I want to be open about this. What, what, what triggered that, do you know? Um, there were a couple things. First was I was getting so deep in advocacy that it was uh, affecting my career where, you know, I would hide it in the music world, but then I would go and speak at a conference about mental health. So like eventually those worlds were starting to collide where um, I had actually, believe it or not, I had been denied jobs because people could just look up that I had you know, survived rape and suicide and they could read on my whole life story. I've been fired from jobs. Um, I've been, I've had girls not date me anymore because, you know, they go on a couple of dates with me, they Google me and read all this stuff. And they're like, Oh, too much baggage. And I realized like, I'm, I have a choice. Either I can stop sharing and all of this information about me is going to live on the internet forever. So that's not really going to help me. Or I can just lean into it and know that this is important. And I probably wouldn't want to spend a whole mess of time with people who are so closed-minded that they would judge me for it anyway. Like that isn't the type of girl that I would want to date. This isn't the type of company I would want to work for if I'm being judged by that. So um, I think there was a there was a choice to just lean into it because it, I felt my heart was called to it. And I've seen so many lives transformed from peer support. So I was like, well, I'm not backing down there. But also when Dark Sermon, Dark Sermon broke up, we like uh, fulfilled our contract with our record label and all the other members were like, oh, we're going to have kids and buy a house because like this, we can't stand living in a van anymore. And I'm like, <laughs> I get that. So um, with prison, it was sort of like, my last in my head it's prison is my last chance at music where i was so close to quitting music you know you i I didn't even get to be an adult yet you know you're 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 gone three quarters of the year you're missing funerals and weddings and birthdays and your friends are buying houses and getting promotions and and getting married and and i'm like uh we played with slipknot it was only one show but we did play with slipknot and they're like who's Slipknot? And I'm like, oh, this sucks. So I think there was a sense of I'm already this deep in music and I'm already this deep in advocacy. And these are the two things that I care about more than anything. So why on earth would I continue to try to keep them separate? So I'm I'm amazed that as a musician, you were hiding and guarded and acting. And at the same time, you were doing the advocacy. So what, what prompted the advocacy to begin with? 
So I taught improv comedy and performed improv comedy comedy in high school and college, um, and then for several years after college. And we, uh, there was a member of the Orlando improv community who had um, died by suicide, and we put together a like all of the comedians in Orlando, like whether it's improv or sketch or or stand up, we all put together this. Um, comedy festival the orlando indie comedy festival to raise money for a charity um and that charity happened to be the national alliance on mental illness and we presented them with this big novelty check i think we only raised like four or five grand and it took so much work it was like such a complicated huge thing but you know tickets are like 10 bucks or whatever it's comedy so (laughs) we we present them with this big novelty check and um and then this woman, Rosemary Steinbach, was was on the stage. She was the president of NAMI Greater Orlando at the time. And uh, she was like, thank you guys. And if you're not aware of what we do, which I was not, I was just like, okay, that's the charity that we're giving to. Um, she was like, if you're not aware of what we do, we do a lot of mental health advocacy and we go into schools and um, and businesses and even in individual people's families and friend groups to speak about mental illness and how it affects people and the things that we can do to help. Um, And she was kind of like, if any of you are interested in being involved with something like that, if that's something that you're passionate about, just let me know. So she, this is like 2 a.m. downtown Orlando. And she walks out the back door with this big check. And I, so sleeveless shirt covered in tattoos. I'm like 185 pounds of muscle. I was like huge. I might've been closer to 190 at the time because I used to bodybuild. So I was like, jacked and I run this lady down in downtown Orlando and I'm like what can I do to help I live with mental illness right now I'm taking medication right now I'm taking antipsychotic medication I'm seeing a therapist I'm seeing a psychiatrist I attend mandatory counseling at UCF in order to continue to be a student I want to do something I'm super my whole life is so screwed up I can't even begin to explain but I want to help and that that was the beginning of this is going to sound cliche, but that was the beginning of the rest of my life. When I made, I was like, if there are other people who feel like me and I can share with them and it might help them, I have to do that all the time. So that was in 2011. And here we are in 2020 and I work full time in the mental health field. Yeah. It, it, it again, I find in, and everyone, when, once, once you stop focusing on your own pain, and realize that you can actually help other people deal with their pain, and that, that doing that it makes your pain lessened as well. And that we're you know you're not just in this, and it's not just you're not just stuck in hell. Everything sucks, and you're just waiting to die. Um, yeah. yeah, there's amazing things when when you can turn around and and, and just focus for the, even the smallest amount of time on someone else. It, it changes changes your whole outlook. Oh, just because for a long time I thought nobody feels like me. I'm so unique. My situation is so different from, and now looking back, I'm like, oh, your parents were the only ones to be abusive? Really? Well, let's pull up some stats. Oh, your your parents were the only ones to get a divorce. Interesting. Oh, you were the only one to grow up in a low-income household or to share a room with a sibling? Oh, okay. Well, why don't we just pull up some stats that show you that there are millions and millions of people that you probably see every day who feel just like you. And I think- I wanted to cling to the idea that my pain was unique to me because I felt safe there. But the moment I started opening up to the idea that other people might've been in similar situations, maybe it's not exactly the same, but maybe they kind of get where I'm coming from and I kind of get where they're coming from. All of a sudden, I mean, think of it like acupuncture. If you lay on one needle, you're going to die. If you lay on 50,000 needles, for some reason, I guess it feels good. I, I'm scared to do it. But um, I think the same principle applies here. If you just are open to the idea that other people feel a similar pain, all of a sudden, it's not the universe or God punishing you. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, maybe this is part of the human condition for a lot of people. And it's not that anyone singled me out to torture me. Maybe it's us, you know? Cool. Mm. So I, I definitely want to get to cope notes. Uh, this is how you're really serving the most people. The, you're really scaling up your advocacy work with cope notes. So, so where did the idea of cope notes, where did that begin? 
So if you want the long version, definitely watch my TED Talk because that is 18 minutes of an explanation. Um, The short version is I really wanted to build an advocacy tool that... um, that could do a better job than I could. So anyone who's tried to do anything is aware of the sheer unreliability of humans. Like we can't, dude, I can't set my mind to do crap. I will like, I'll be like, I'm going to exercise every single day this week. And then on Thursday it rains. And I'm like, well, (laughs) all of a sudden that is broken. So I, I realize, especially through touring, that people wanted me to help them. And I thought, oh, no, no, no. Like, I will help you a little bit, but I can't, I can't help you help you long term. Like, I suck sometimes. Like, I'm cranky or I'm hungry or I have to go to the bathroom or I miss your email or your message. Like, I'm a human being and I am not reliable enough for you to put your hope into. So I think it was, I think I wanted to build not only the tool that I needed, the tool that I was looking for, and and something that was anonymous, something that was extremely low cost, something that was passive and interventional and preventative and really easy to understand and digest. Um, so not only did I want a tool that was like that, but also I was aware that if I build something that can help 100 million people, but I don't get the same credit for it as if I did it myself it's a heck of a lot better than me trying to help a thousand people and only being effective with like 600 of them, you know? So cope notes is a, a, a daily, just brief text message. And, and you set me up with a, a two week trial. And what, what surprised me, what I liked was that it was, you didn't know what, when it was showing up, you know, mm-hmm. the random time of it is like, well, who the hell is this? Like, what, wait, what? Oh, no, like took like three or four times before I realized, Oh, it's, it's the cope note. All right, cool. But uh, yeah, really, boy, it just makes you stop whatever you're doing, you know, read it. They, they, sometimes there's a question, sometimes a statement, sometimes, and sometimes it did like right back to it. And so mm-hmm. it, if, if uh, it, what I want to ask, is, is the same messages going out to, to everybody at the same time or how, how randomized is the experience? Yeah, so that's the biggest misconception about what we do is that we just send like a mass email or a mass app notification that goes to everybody. And uh, we don't do that. That was the original version when I didn't have a chief technology officer and I didn't know what I was doing um, back in the very early days. But now we have a, a library of all of these approved text messages and they're written by peers with lived experience and they're reviewed by mental health professionals to make sure we're not just texting people like, smile today. <laughs> You know, these are actual messages that are based in proven psychology. And really, the the goal of it is to have such a deep well of content and then shuffle it differently for each user so that no two users receive the same text at the same time. So the trial is the same sequence for everybody. We had to have some sense of structure for that first little interaction. But when you subscribe... Every time you get a text, you are the only person in the world to receive that text at that time. And it helps the brain assign a little more personal value when it comes in. And, and so I'm I'm a subscriber. I'm using it. What, what happens if I do respond? Does that, is that seen by anybody? Is it, does it go anywhere? So I was actually just on a call about this and a lot of people aren't really aware of the principle of self-report, but once I explain it, you'll be like, Oh, I know exactly what that is. So self-report is you reporting details about yourself. And we are very inaccurate in doing so. And I can prove it to you. The last time someone asked you how you were, you probably said, I'm doing well. And how are you? That is an inaccuracy in your self-report. And over time, when we sort of water it down and we cushion it to make other people feel more comfortable, we lose our sense of being able to accurately identify what it is that we feel where that might be coming from and what we can do about it. So that's why every therapist I've ever been to, and I've seen, trust me, I have left many a therapist and tried many a new one. And every single one I've ever met pushes journaling. And that's because when you journal, it doesn't respond to you right away. It doesn't nod knowingly or shake their head or write something down. The magic of journaling is that when you say what you really feel, nothing happens. 
And over time, you learn that it is safe to share exactly how you feel without watering it down. And really, that's what we want is Cope Notes to act as a digital journal where we reach out to you once a day. You can text us back 50 times a day or never. But the goal is for you to, over time, grow gradually more comfortable with sharing so that when you feel a feeling, you can accurately identify it and then make intelligent steps towards doing something about it. And what if a text hits me and it's, it's at a time that I, I'm really in crisis, like I'm, I'm about to do some sort of self-harm? Um, what, is there a sort of safety net or a way to escalate? Or Yes, we have um, a keyword, help. And if you text help back, um, we send a crisis response text that gives you the option. It does not automatically connect you. So we're not, that's not our job. We send you um, an option to connect with our partners, the crisis text line. And really the message says, if you're just trying to vent and let it out and, you know, really, really walk through what you're walking through by speaking about it, continue to do so. But if you need someone right now, in this very moment, our friends at the crisis text line would be happy to help you and the user can choose to connect. But we've always, that's why we partner with other organizations because our specialty is maintenance, it's prevention, it's intervention, it's long-term thought pattern and behavior change. If you need real-time help with a trained crisis counselor, we have partners who can do that way better than we ever could. Cool. And, and when did Cope Notes start? How long has this been going on now? We launched the version of Cope Notes that exists today in March of 2018. There were a couple beta versions before that, but they didn't survive. Uh, we learned a lot. So Cope Notes, with the name Cope Notes and the structure that we have today, launched in March of 2018. And in that time, we have exchanged... We, yesterday, we sent our 400,000th text message. Wow. So I am over the moon about that. We have users in 87 countries, and it's been... It was very slow growing at first, but once word of mouth really started hitting, I think that's when we, we started seeing some real growth that justified my wild decision to quit my job to pursue this full time. Cool. And are, are there, is it everything you want right now or are there more things planned that you see expanding or? Oh, dude, we're building all sorts of awesome crap. I can't wait. I like... You know, the original idea was, what if we could text somebody something that would help them? And then slowly it was like, well, the right text at the right time can make a big difference. And then it was like, oh, well, what if we can add this and change this and allow people to customize this? And slowly we are working towards some incredible changes to our system that I cannot wait to roll out. I'm not speaking on them yet, but I will say that we're doing extensive research with um, the University of South Florida about the efficacy of some of the changes that we are implementing. We're going to do some some more studies. And if this winds up being as helpful as we think it's going to be, Cope Notes is going to look completely different in the best way possible. Cool, cool, cool. And are, are, are you seeing, um, and the people you deal with and, and the signups and kind of maybe the messages you're hearing from people, are, are you seeing an increase in depression and anxiety with, with COVID-19 going on? Yeah, we have, I mean, in the last couple months, we've seen like maybe 3,000 people sign up. I mean, it is, it is absolutely unreal, the level of demand for digital mental health right now. And what we're viewing this as, it, this will never be a cash grab to me. This is an opportunity to leverage a system that can scale infinitely for the benefit of people who need something now, not in seven weeks or not when the country opens up again. But I mean, right this second, if they want a tool that they can leverage on a daily basis, Cope Notes is, is more than happy to meet that need because this is what we built it for. Cool. And have any marketing people come to you saying, oh, you got to reach, you know, your band's got to be called Cope Notes. Everything's got to be Cope Notes. You know? uh, um, we have had a lot of people say that, Cope notes should be in certain marketplaces, but what they don't understand is how difficult it can be to break into those marketplaces. Like, oh, why, why don't, why doesn't Cope notes just, um, why isn't it just a part of my insurance plan? It's like, well, we've been working towards that for two years and change, and it takes a long time. So, 
if anyone's listening and does have connections in healthcare or in the school system or um, in business and like HR and wellness, I would love to talk to you because it's like, everyone's like, oh, have you ever considered just getting Walmart to give it to their employees? And it's like, well, freaking, yeah, that would be wonderful. But how, how the heck do we make that happen? You know? Not to make it sound like there should be something else, but there are other things in your advocacy that, that you want to touch base on? Um, I mentioned the TED Talk. I encourage you guys to watch that because it took me a long time to write and it's pretty comprehensive. Is, um, so probably that that, answer a lot of your questions. Is that the how to grow as a person? Yes. Okay, cool. So there's that. And then uh, my band is a huge arm of it. And honestly, I have been mulling over the idea of of starting other things like i've wanted to finish a book that i started for a long time i wanted to have a radio program i wanted to start doing a vlog and honestly i realized that the more moving parts you add the more complicated it can be for a user so right now i'm sticking with prison please listen to my band cope notes please use the tool that i built for you and then if you are a podcast person I do run the Cope Notes podcast and we talk about a lot of stuff like this and other stuff. So I encourage you to give that a listen. And if those three things do well enough, then hopefully I will not go start another thing. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So is, is there one site where people can find all that or what's the best way to track down all this? I think, I think this, the best thing you could do is go to copenotes.com. It is, it is the single most straightforward thing um, and if you live in America and you want to try Cope Notes for free, you can text the word COPE to the number 33222 and you can get two weeks free and um, it won't auto charge you and it's anonymous. So I won't know that you did it. So don't worry about it. And then um, if you live outside of the US, you can just go to copenotes.com and sign up there. Cool. And what about prison? Do you have a website for prison or where can people check out the music? Uh Spotify, YouTube, Apple Music, pretty much anywhere you look. I would recommend our new record, Still Alive. And um, we also just put out a live album just a couple weeks ago. So if you are missing concerts as much as we are, I would definitely check out that live album. Cool. Awesome, man. Um, you've done a lot. You're still doing a lot. Um, I just really want to say I appreciate you and, and all your uh, – the ways – you're giving back and kind of stretching beyond yourself and stretching yourself. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's both needed sadly and appreciated. Good. Um, with all the things you've done so far, does it, does anything stand out the most to you as, as what you're proudest of? It's interesting. I've, I don't know that I've ever thought of that. Um, I don't know. <laughs> what a stumper. Um, I think of it on such my on such a micro level that I've never. I don't even have a good answer for that. Honestly, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna even be able to make one up. I think, like anytime I get a message from somebody that you know the TED Talk helped them, or or a certain record helped them, or or Cope Notes has helped them, you know, overcome addiction or get out of an abusive relationship or whatever it is, I'm like this is my, this is my why. So I think I just, I jump from why to why, because this is really hard to do advocacy and especially to do it full time, you sacrifice a lot. So um, I think I'm just, instead of having one crowning achievement, like, because the first thing that popped into my head was like the TED talk, like, well, that's like bucket list for me. But even even right now, a few months after my TED talk, like when I get a message from someone who says they're, they're still alive on the planet because of something I said or did, I'm like, this is going to give me enough juice to get to, to the next moment where I get enough juice. It's very, very day-to-day for me. Well, then, might I suggest that it sounds like it's, it's your impact? Yeah. That's what you're proudest of. Or at least that's what gives you the juice. Oh yeah. Just, just hearing from people and knowing like it's easy. Anyone who, who is a caregiver or works in care or advocacy or, or is even kind to people can experience compassion fatigue. And that's something that I've, I've struggled with a lot and just having a reminder that, Hey, all of this is worth it. All of your effort, all of your heartache and your financial commitment and your time commitment. And I mean, these are my twenties. Like, of course I want to, 
go buy a convertible Mustang and, and go date a bunch of people and hang out in Jamaica and just enjoy my twenties. I'm, I'm at fundraisers, you know, and conferences and I run a business from my bedroom and it a lot of times can feel like maybe I'm missing out on the things that my friends are experiencing in their twenties and they experience maybe a little more freedom. And then I get a message from someone that says, you saved my marriage. And I know that to not be true. I know that I didn't save their marriage because I don't know them. But to know that something I said or did influenced them saving their own marriage is enough for me to commit another day. Mm-hmm. And well, that brings up something else. Um, in your current state of health and well-being, is it day-to-day? Is the suicide still lurking around in the back of your head? or So... I still experience a lot of symptoms of um, OCD, anxiety, PTSD, a few of those, um, bipolar. But I will say that probably the ones that I've made the most progress with are um, schizophrenia and my suicidal ideations because um, my hallucinations are much more in control now. I almost never experience auditory or visual hallucinations, which were like some of my most pronounced symptoms for a long time. Um, And as far as suicidal ideation, I think right now with the world on fire, this is the worst time to leave it. Like truly I, every single day for the past few months has, has been really challenging truly, but never once in the last few months or even the last couple of years have I considered suicide because Um, the way I see it, my life is the only thing I'll ever have. You don't own your car, even if you think you own it. You don't own your house, even if you think you own it. The only thing that you get in this life is your body, you, your life. So the idea that I would throw away the only thing that I've ever actually had right now seems so foreign to me because it's my only asset. With so much lived experience, with with all of your research and gathering and 400,000 text messages from Cope Notes, what do you wish more people knew? This is an easy one for me. I wish more people knew that every single person has a brain. And it's here's what I wish people knew. The, the famous statistic is one in five people experience a mental health condition right now and the statistic that i wish everybody knew is you know people say one in five experience mental illness five in five experience mental health so i wish that everyone knew that they are not exempt everyone listening to this podcast who thinks that they have it all figured out everyone out in the world our friends and family members and coworkers. i wish if i could download one thing into everyone's brain at the same time, and I only had one chance, it would be that nobody is exempt. Everybody has a brain. Everyone should focus on their mental and emotional health, no matter how they feel or how they think they feel. Mental health should be a priority for people who are healthy, people who are um, struggling, and everyone in between. I think I just wish everybody knew that their brain was just as important as everyone else's. Cool. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, and it, it can be slow to, to grasp that, to realize that. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, I, I appreciate your time today. And like I said, I'm a fan of everything you're doing. I'll, I'll, I come out officially. I totally cope notes is, is cool as hell. Um, just in my you know, week of seeing it so far, like uh, I've learned things I didn't know about avocados, about a massage technique. So uh, yeah. it's all really good information. And as of this morning, I'm officially a prison fan. I'm gonna go listen to more of that. And uh, yeah. you know, everything we talked about, uh, visit realmenfield.org for links to everything, um, for, for Cope Notes, for prison, for the, the TED Talks. We'll have it all up there for all things Johnny. And uh, yeah, man, um, just keep it going. Yes, <laughs> sir. Really, yeah. You're doing Thank great. You for having keep it me. up. It was a pleasure. And uh, everyone listening, thanks for joining us. Uh, wherever you're discovering Real Men Feel, give us a subscription, a share, a like, a review. Tell someone, uh, write back to your first cope note going, hey, I heard you on Real Men Feel. <laughs> Whatever makes you feel good. That's really the message. And uh, know that 
however weird life gets, you were made for it. So be good to yourself. Until next time, be well, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Contact us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Learn more about Andy Grant at theandygrant.com. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you are discovering Real Men Feel.